Have you ever experienced road rage? And no, I'm not just talking about like a simple honk of the horn or a hand gesture here and there. I'm talking about someone so angry with you that they feel the need to go out of their way to communicate how upset they really are. I I was driving alone on the way to the store one time and uh, another car quickly cut me off to get into the right turn lane. And I just gave this little just beep. My car has the most pathetic horn, but I just gave a little, a little beep to let them know I was there and had no idea what I was getting myself into. A, this is Oregon, and honking your horn at any time is considered rude for some reason. B, I am completely conflict avoidant. I am the flight in fight or flight, so I, I didn't want to get into anything. And C, I didn't notice before, but I did immediately after I honked, a little bumper sticker at the back of this vehicle that said, go ahead and honk, see what happens. Well, this driver ended up maneuvering their way behind me in what I'm sure was an attempt to just follow me where I was going so we could pull into a parking lot and have a nice, polite conversation. Uh, But in either way, I panicked. I drove straight and way beyond the store I was intending to go to until they quit their chase. So what is it about road rage? What, What makes this happen? And why is it so prevalent? Why do we hear about it all the time? According to a study by Actus Psychologica, 93% of American drivers believe that they are better than the average driver. I'll say that again, let it sink in. 93% of American drivers believe they are better than the average driver. So what happens when everyone believes that they are better than the driver in the car next to them? When you get into a sticky situation, of course, it's the other driver's fault. So how dare you honk your horn at me? It's a symptom of our overall need to be right, our overall belief that we are right. And we feel it in our relationships, in our homes, in our workplaces. Uh, Catherine Schultz, uh, a journalist, wrote, if we relish being right and regard it as our natural state, you can imagine how we feel about being wrong. For one thing, we tend to view it as rare and bizarre, an inexplicable aberration in the normal order of things. For another, it leaves us feeling idiotic and ashamed, like the term paper returned to us covered in red ink. Being wrong makes us cringe and slouch down in our seat. It makes our hearts sink and our dander rise. At best, we regard it as a nuisance. At worst, a nightmare. But in either case, and quite unlike the gleeful little rush of being right, we experience our errors as deflating and embarrassing. Well, Welcome to Abundant Life Church. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you are joining us as we continue our series in the book of James. Today, we're gonna be looking at James chapter four. So if you have a Bible with you, either uh, an actual book in your hand or a device, I welcome you to just join us there and read along. Now, you may have noticed a pattern as we've kind of gone along in this book, uh, the first three chapters. There's a particular way that James communicates that's different from other New Testament writers. It's, It's unique to him, and it's partly why it's so enjoyable to read the book of James. If you have a chance to go back and look, you'll notice that each book addresses a specific 
problem in the church. It, it talks about why it's so, uh, it's so uh, big, it's so uh, uh, impactful in that church community and then gives a solution to it. But then each chapter ends with just a quick one-liner that sums up that message of the chapter, sums up the problem and the solution. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of uh, go through the book so far so we can kind of see how this pattern uh, has taken place. Chapter one, we talked about what the word of God uh, says, doing what the word of God says. It's not just a, a, a study book. It's not just a, a book to gain knowledge. It's a book to do. I think Pastor Mike the last couple of weeks has said this is a do book. And so the, the one-liner at the end is religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now we move into chapter two. We're talking about favoritism, discrimination taking place in, in the church body. And, and then fo uh, following that, showing our faith through good deeds. And it ends with, with this line, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. If you grew up in Sunday school or in Awanas, you may be seeing some of these verses as, as ones that you memorized uh, because they are just these really memorable one-liners. Chapter three, the power and the danger of the tongue, right? This was last week, talking about how the tongue uh, can destroy. It is such a powerful weapon. And the end of, it, of that, that chapter says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. See, James made it pretty easy on the folks that were dividing the Bible into chapters, right? I can just imagine them in their office going, oh, there's another one-liner. I guess that's uh, chapter three, right? Uh, it's easily sectioned off. We've come to the end. Here's something memorable to take away. And this is a teaching technique that, that is still used today when we're teaching on any given topic, whether in a school or in a church or in a business, there's these memorable phrases, memorable sentences for people to just take away. If you don't remember this big lecture I just gave, maybe you'll at least remember this short phrase. Now, chapter four keeps this pattern going. And the core message here is about humility. There's a conflict going on in the church. And, and this conflict is actually a symptom of a larger problem. And that's pride and selfishness. And this pride is showing up in all sorts of different ways that are leading to conflict. One, there's selfish desire that's prevalent in the church. Two, judgmentalism. And thirdly, selfish ambition. And, and you'll see as we kind of walk through this chapter that James addresses each of those uh, as, as we go along. But the solution to each and what keeps coming up in this chapter, you'll see this word over and over again, is humility. Humble yourselves. Show humility. Live a life of humility. And I'm going to spoil the one-liner here and now, so you don't have, just have to keep waiting. James 4, 17 says, remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. So we know where we're headed. We know what our one-liner is at the end. So let's go ahead and get into the text. James 4, starting in verse 1. What is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Don't they come from evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. 
You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Now, in my opinion, this is James using hyperbole to illustrate how severe these conflicts are. That's why he talks about scheming and killing and and waging war. If people were literally killing each other in the church, I don't think we'd be reading about it all the way in chapter four. In fact, I think at a minimum, it would require its own letter. No, I think James is, is talking about the severity of this conflict. This isn't just petty arguments. These aren't just disagreements. This is severe conflict that is tearing the church apart. And then we continue in verse two. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. So here's the deal. You don't have what you want. And instead of asking God for it, you, you, you take it from others forcefully. And even when you remember to ask God for it, you're not asking for some grand, uh, good mission in life. You're asking just for your own pleasure your own desire. And then we come to the famous line, friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. We hear things like this all the time, right? The, the ways of the world versus the ways of God, worldly music or Christian music. And it can get all the way to, to thinking anything that comes from the world, we just need to reject because those are worldly things. And to me, this has been a confusing concept. Why? Because in John chapter three and other places throughout the Bible, we read things like, for God so loved the world. So how do we reconcile these things? God loved the world, shouldn't we? But we're not supposed to be friends with the world. How does this make sense? Well, in in chapter four here, there are two key words at play uh, that that will bring us some, some clarity here. First is friendship. And second is the world. In our Christmas series, we spoke about the the different words for love in the Greek language. In English, there's one word. In Greek, there's six or more, if you break down some some other uh, root words and things like that. But the word translated here as friendship is philia. It's one of these words for love, and it specifically means uh, deep friendship, familial Love. It's the root word of, of Philadelphia, right? The, the city of brotherly love. And it's a word that has more to do with identity, more to do with belonging than it does with emotions. And it may surprise you that, that we only find the word philia twice in the Bible, and both of them are in James 4, verse 4. So when it comes to love, we are limited by the English language, right? We have one word in English. There's many words in Greek. Well, it's the reverse for the world. The word for the world in in Greek is cosmos. And this is a word that we have multiple words for in English. It can mean the the physical world, the, the planet Earth, the created materials around us, right? It can mean all the people of the world, humanity, the the population of the world. And most commonly in the New Testament, it it refers to uh, not a physical place, not a group of people, but a way of life. 
Pastor John Mark Comer, a local uh, pastor at Bridgetown Church, said that the world is a system of ideas, values, practices, and social norms that are institutionalized in a culture organized around the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. In simpler terms, the world is a way of life contrary to the way of Jesus. When one word has multiple meanings though, when we have the the physical world, when we have the the people of the world, when we have this way of life, we have to figure out how do we we decide which one is being talked about here? And for that, we really have to look at context. I'll give you an example. If I were to say, go get the pitcher, that could mean multiple things, right? What you would need to do is look around you. Am I in a kitchen? Then I'm probably not asking you to go find someone who can throw a fastball. Right, you can look around you and, and figure out what I'm meaning by that word. The same uh, is true when it comes to scripture. When we read, for God so loved the world that, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We're talking about people, right? Whoever, whoever. It's, it's referring to humanity, people. When we read friendship, or identity or, or kinship with the world makes you an enemy of God. And it comes after a whole section talking about our selfish desires, our, our taking from others. It's clear we're talking about this third definition, this way of life contrary to the way of Jesus. James is saying, Man, Jesus calls us to lay down our life for our friends, but you've been laying down your friends to further your own life. James is saying we, don't, we are not to get comfortable with the ways of this life. That isn't where we should find our belonging, our identity. It will lead you away from God. I know everything around you points to, to furthering your own life. Everyone around you is trying to get ahead of other people, but that's not the way of Jesus. But what is the way of Jesus? As we continue in verse six, we read, as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. See, the way of Jesus is all about humility. And when it comes to relational conflict, what we're reading about here in this chapter, the difference between the way of the world and the way of Jesus is humility, to not dig in, to not just try to come out on top, to not try to only get your way. It's to humble yourself. And it's not fun. It's not easy. As we continue, verse nine, we read, let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Man, sorrow, sadness, gloom. That doesn't sound like the gospel. At least it wasn't the gospel as it was preached to me. Follow Jesus. He will give you gloom. So what are are we getting at here? Jesus never promised us happy lives, easy lives. He promised us the fullness of life. And fullness of life includes healthy relationships. But in every meaningful relationship that you have and that I have, there will be 
conflict. There, there will be hurt caused intentionally and unintentionally. And some of that hurt is going to be caused by you and by me. The question is, are you willing to own the hurt that you've caused? See, we don't like feeling the weight of our own actions. We don't like feeling that guilt, sadness, gloom. And the easiest way to avoid that is to shift it onto someone else. And we see that from the very beginning in Genesis and and that Eden narrative, Adam and Eve, right? God told them, don't eat the fruit from this tree. And they eat it. And when God confronts Adam, what does Adam say? I know I shouldn't have eaten it, but it was the woman that you gave me that gave it to me. See, we've been shifting the blame from the very beginning. What would it look like if we stopped ourselves before that word, but? I know I shouldn't have said that, but you, you were being a real jerk. Or, I know I shouldn't have said that. Oh, I mean, right? Like that, we, we want to fill that space with an excuse, right? Or, or, or some other reason that we've said that or something wrong that they've done. But what if we just allowed ourselves to sit there? I know it's uncomfortable. It's like, get that guilt off of me. But James is communicating that true humility is allowing ourselves to feel the weight of our actions. What would change? if our conflicts stopped because we owned up to what each of us had done. Our own contributions, we feel the weight of it, we own up to it, and that is the source of our conversations. I know it's not easy, it doesn't feel good, but it leads to lasting and thriving relationship, not just with God, but with other people. In February, we're gonna be starting a series on relationships. We're gonna look at what what does it mean to have a thriving uh, marriage, family, friendships, even relationships with our enemies. How can we look at these relationships, these people, and think about how do I reflect God to them? How do they reveal who God is to me? And I wanna invite you to be a part of that as we get started in the month of February. We're gonna be offering uh, the Sunday message, like always, but also midweek seminars to look at each of these relationships a little bit deeper. Check out our website, social media channels uh, in the coming weeks to find out more about that. As we continue in verse 11, uh, we see, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? See, now we have multiple themes from earlier chapters that are coming together. In chapter two, we talked about that favoritism, discrimination. In chapter three, the power of the tongue. And now James has been building to this whole idea. Don't speak evil against each other. Don't judge one another. The words that we say to one another matter. They can build up or they can tear down, but they always reveal and reflect the heart of the speaker. See, it's so easy to focus on the words and actions of others because once again, we don't want to feel the weight of our own words 
and actions. And man, if we can keep the focus on them, maybe I can go a little bit longer without dealing with my own journey, my own shortcomings. And I've been preaching for a few years now and the, the most common comment I receive after a sermon, and I know it comes with the best of intentions, is I am so glad you said that. I know so many people that need to hear it. And it took me a while to kind of process that because when I write a message, when I'm thinking about, about what God would, would say to the, the church congregation, the people I'm sharing with, I'm thinking about the people in the room, not all the people that they know that this could benefit. And so what I started doing is just responding, you know, thanks. And what did you need to hear from that? Because I really want to know, are, are the things that I'm saying, are the things that, that we're sharing as, as a church family, are they really for us? How are we growing? How are we being impacted by the scriptures, by what God would say to us? Church, we so often forget that the gospel is still a message for you and for me. It's not just a message for everyone else. You and I are continually being shaped into the image of Christ. And we can't fall into this idea that once we choose to follow Jesus, once we uh, start serving in a ministry, going on a mission trip, leading a life group, become a pastor, that this message is no longer for us, that we have nowhere else to grow. So I ask you, when was the last time you experienced the gospel? When was the last time you experienced Jesus? It's a question that I've come to ask myself on a regular basis. In Matthew 25, we find Jesus describing the kingdom of God and he paints this picture of the throne room with Jesus as king turning to the people on his right and saying, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they reply asking basically, Jesus, when did we do those things? And his response to them is, I, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. I want you to notice here that it is the people who are serving that are encountering Jesus, not just those who are being served. I'll say it again. When Jesus says, you were doing it to me, when you were serving, when you were clothing, when you were visiting, you were doing it to me. He's communicating, when you did those things, you were experiencing me. I think it, uh, it's, it's with the best intentions that we look for ways to bring the gospel to other people. And absolutely, that's the mission, right? That's the commission to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. But we forget that when we encounter people in need, we are encountering Jesus. What does Jesus have for us in those encounters? Who is bringing the gospel to you? Is it the hungry? Is it the stranger? Is it those who are sick or in prison? And I ask you, could your own judgment of others be getting in the way of what God has in store for you? Is it possible that there is someone demonstrating the kingdom of God to you and you are missing it because of your judgment of them? 
Speaker and author Jenny Allen said, can you imagine how ineffective Jesus's ministry appeared to be except when he did miracles? Most days, it was just eating meals with sinners, telling people stories that didn't totally make sense and ticking off the influential religious people. And then he got killed, which really looks like a ministry fail. Yet God was up to something and Jesus knew his ultimate purpose. So he didn't care what his ministry looked like to the people around him and neither should we. Who are we to judge what God is up to? And who are we to judge whether it's effective for the kingdom of God. You see, true humility means letting God do the judging. It protects your relationships. It relieves that pressure of needing to be right and allows you to see what God is doing in and through the lives of others who are different than you. So we see that pride reveals itself in our selfish desires, It reveals itself in our judgment of others, but it also shows up in our own ambition. And this is how James kind of ties up this chapter, uh, chapter four. It says this, verse 13. Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay, uh, stay there for a year. We'll do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. What you ought to say is, get this, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. See, what this boils down to is, are you making plans that God's gonna have to kind of work his way into? Or are your plans subject to what God wants to do in your life? See, we can say things like, God, I know you want me to do something about our overloaded foster system, right? But I have a five-year plan and I don't see how that's kind of gonna work within my plan. God, I realize I need to be more connected to my church family. I know that that's a need, but I just have so much going on right now. Church, following Jesus isn't a side gig. It's a way of life. God won't fit himself into the world's way of life, right? He is calling us to an altogether different way of life. And it's contrary to the world around you where everyone's trying to get ahead. Everyone's going after their next goal for wealth, for relationships, for family. God's saying, I have something grander in mind for you. I once had a pastor who would end every email with the same Latin phrase, Deo Valente, Deo Valente. It means God willing. It would say things like, uh, let's touch base on this next week, Deo Valente, God willing. Or I'm out of town, but we can look this over when I get back, Deo Valente. See, this is a, a common phrase from the early church. Uh, that it's a reminder that we can make the best of plans with the best of intentions, but whether or not they happen is really in God's hands. You know, some of us are in the moment thinkers, right? We're, we're task oriented, we have our heads down, but others like me are dreamers. And we, are, are, we like to think and, and dream of what could be five, 10, 20 years from now. And this simple phrase helps me to remember, yes, all of that 
could happen if my plan is a part of God's plan. Deo Valente. Well, now we've come to our one-liner for this chapter. And if you remember what it is, it says, remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. I love this reminder. You see, we often think of sin as all of the things that we shouldn't do that we're not supposed to do. But what about the things that we know we are supposed to do? And my wife and I are having a, a, a learning moment or a learning opportunity with our, with our kids. We often ask the question, what would be a better choice next time? And almost without exception, the response is to not do it. Right? And of course, our response as parents is, okay, I, right. But I didn't ask what you're not going to do. I asked what you are going to do. What would be the better choice? This is where James is getting at as we close this chapter. It's not enough to know that we shouldn't be selfish or prideful. It's not even enough to try to not be selfish or prideful. What God is calling us to is the purposeful pursuit of humility, to make choices that reflect humility, to, to, to own our mistakes, to feel the weight of our own actions and words, to focus on our own shortcomings rather than the, the errors or shortcomings of others and to recognize that our plans are a part of a much bigger picture that God is painting. Let me pray. God, I thank you for what you invite us into, a way of life. God, if you were just calling us to, to have better manners, Lord, to be a part of a social club, I don't think it'd be worth it. But God, I know you are calling us to something much grander, a way of life, the kingdom of God. Where it's not about getting ahead of others. It's not about gaining more for ourselves. Lord, it's about doing what we can to be more like you, to reflect love for you and to show sacrificial love for others. Lord, I, I pray for our church family who are listening to this and anyone who may be joining and, and seeing this message from elsewhere. Lord, would we be a people known for our love for one another and our humility before you? Lord, our recognition that only you are in a place to judge because it's only you that can bring life and death. It should only be you that speaks life and death. Lord, would we be people that just speak love? Lord, that own up to our mistakes, that recognize that yes, everyone has things to work on, but I do too, and I need to focus on that. And that recognize that our grandest plans are nothing if they don't line up with what you wanna do in this world. God, I wanna be a part of what you're doing in this world. And thank you for your invitation to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.